Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. It's not radical. It's biblical. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. It's not radical. It's biblical. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, There's one thing you lack. First, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. It's not radical. It's biblical. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. It's not radical. It's biblical. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not radical. It's biblical. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's not radical. It's biblical. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's not radical. It's biblical. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, will you recognize them. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is not radical. It's biblical. As they were walking down the road one day, a man came up to them and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first I must go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and declare the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Listen, what is radical is living out Christ's words in my world. So the question I have to ask myself is, is it worth it? Is he worth giving up my finances? Is he worth changing my plans? Is he worth how I spend my time? Is he worth being the focus of my desires and dreams? Is he worth surrendering my thought life? Is he worth leaving the known and comfortable? Is he, is he worth my attention right now? Is he worth this next 40 minutes? Is he worth the rest of this day? Is he worth the rest of my life? The mantra of the American dream is to advance yourself with hard work, ingenuity, innovation. You can have it all. The frightening reality of the gospel. Jesus does call us to give up everything we have. And he may tell any one of us to sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor. 
But we don't believe this. If we form Jesus to look like us and be who we want Him to be, then even when we gather together and sing our praises and lift our hands, the reality is we are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. We are worshiping and singing to ourselves. We have a master who demands radical obedience. Commission that warrants radical urgency. And we do not have time to waste our lives living out a Christian spin on the American dream. The most glorious reason you exist is for the proclamation of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. And it's more than having a nice life. It's about giving our lives and our families and our jobs for the proclamation of the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. If we're going to live for the sake of 4.5 million lost people and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who are dying every day because they don't have food on their table, then that means radical change in our lives and our families. Sure. Church, we are plan A, and there is no plan B. A 31-year-old pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, has been inspired to alter his life and what may seem to be a very strange way about doing things. He is taking that and written it into a book and put it into a book called Radical. And as you've been around for any length of time around Grace Point for the past couple of months, you've heard us prepare for this, this day, this journey that we're on. But I don't want to highlight or exalt or somehow elevate this 31-year-old pastor in Birmingham, Alabama as some kind of uh, new thought, new thinker, breakthrough idea. I really want to point you to the fact, as I know David Platt would, is that this is not a radical idea. It is more the fact that it is a biblical idea and that God is calling us to a far more biblical model of a Christian faith than what I can look at and what I measure up against Scripture as being an American model of the Christian faith. I think what we have in America today is we have an American Christianity, but we do not have a biblical Christianity. An American Christianity shaped in fashion in our own desires, in our own culture, and there's an element of this that is true. You contextualize the message of the gospel, but you do not alter the very core of the gospel. You do not alter the life-changing elements of the gospel. We tailor-make things around Grace Point Church for our culture, but the message itself is not altered. The message of life-changing commitment and devotion is absolutely something that we don't have the right, do not have the privilege of going into the sacred text and making it fit our American dream. So put on your seatbelts and let's get ready for a ride. Because we're going to take the next couple of months and we're going to go on a ride through the Scriptures. And we're going to begin to go on what... For some will seem not like the, uh, the little guided ride, pony ride at the circus where you never lose control of the pony and you always have somebody who knows the pony. This is more of one of the loop-de-loop roller coaster rides that we're going to need to take. So again, buckle up and get ready. 
what we're going to do today is we need to go back and we need to hear from our Lord Jesus. And we need to hear His call. We need to hear His invitation. We need to hear again afresh that it's not some rogue disciples over here creating some kind of cult-like following of a dead, gone Jesus in the New Testament. But we literally see from the lips of Jesus words that call out for deep, sold-out, all-in-adventuresome, high-commitment relationship to Him as our Father, as our Savior, as our friend, but most definitely as our Lord and as our Master. And we like to piecemeal Jesus together. It's like going to Luby's. We like to go and to pick out the things that we like and leave the things that maybe maybe a little bit better for us. We like Jesus as a friend, but we don't like Jesus as a master. We like Him as a Savior, but we don't like Him as a Lord. And I think if we are going to have a biblical model of Christianity, we need to stop having an affair with God. When I mean an affair with God is I mean that what we do is we hook up with Jesus on the weekends. And we hang with Him on the weekends and we say the words to Jesus in worship that we love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We might clap our hands. If we're really holy, we might even lift them up. All right. If we're just kind of half-mass people, that's okay too. But we just may, may get really excited about Jesus. We may not. But we have this kind of a love affair with Jesus. But then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's kind of I call my own shots. We go back to our marriage. Our marriage with carnality. Our marriage with faithlessness. Prayerlessness. We go back to a lifestyle that is more materialistic than it is generous. We go back to that faithless lifestyle that we live and we're married to. But on the weekend again, we'll rendezvous with God in a special place that we won't think about any other time. And we'll have that affair with God. 17-year-old Andrea King of Santa Monica, California, submitted an essay to her high school class that said this about religious views. These are her her views on religion. Having a religion should be like a hometown. Sounds quaint. Sounds warm and fuzzy almost. Where you know everyone and all the rules. You don't have to stay there. But you always know where it is. And you can go back whenever you want. The view of the American Christianity is the hometown, buddy kind of faith that you, you know the rules and you know everybody there. And the, and the pastor who, who hats you and matched you will someday dispatch you, hopefully. And you have that kind of relationship with the guy. And, and you see him in Walmart and you, and you go up and you talk about how you're praying for him. And, and, and you go through the religious motions again. And it's kind of, again, this, this buddy kind of guy. You may keep up with him on Facebook. You may see him at a every decade class reunion, if you will, when crisis comes on. But again, is that biblical Christianity? Think about Kenda Dean and a study that was done. She's a Princeton Princeton Theological Seminary professor there and has has let out in the largest study of faith of the young people in America, the largest study of faith of young people in America ever to be done in America. 
She's published it into a book called Almost Christian. She talks about the young people are drawn to a cult of niceness. And that literally, not only is this something that the the younger generation of our culture are, are, are believing and going into, but literally the parents of these teenagers and these college age students are actually encouraging a spirit and a religion of niceness when it comes to your faith. That they, they actually in, 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 in in Dean's own words, she said this, most parents don't want their kids to end up too much like Jesus. Because that would be radical, to, to be among the dirty and the broken and the, and the hurting and the, and the pimps and the prostitutes. We, that's a little bit too much. Just take on a religious cult of niceness. And if you will be that, then that's close enough to Jesus. Don't get any closer than that. She, in her study, has come up with, I think, a very accurate portrayal of what this young generation has deemed as their relationship with God. And God has been reduced in our culture, and every culture has its own interpretations of who God is, which is a very dangerous way to go. But the culture of America in which we live has reduced God to being this, in her words, as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. A moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what is that? What is the moralistic, therapeutic deism? Just break those words apart. That we'll have some sense of morals, that God is our therapist, and deism, that God is this God way up in heaven. He created the world, put the world in motion, but He really doesn't want to bother with your life, and He really doesn't care what you do, and it's kind of on your own. But if you need therapy, go see God. And he will give you some kind of moral guidance. I'm telling you, I think it's very scary when I think about, when I look about the, the faith represented in our homes and in our own culture today. The God that they speak of helps you feel good. Otherwise, God stays out of your way, is what Dean concludes with. Is that the God that Jesus, is that the faith, is that the following that, that, that God calls us to, some kind of buddy-buddy hometown faith, some kind of religious affair with God? Is it, is it some kind of de- moral theistic deism that, that He's calling us to? Or is He calling us to something else? Again, if we can go back today and listen to the words of Jesus and hear His invitation to us and what He has called us to, then maybe we will understand that the representation that we see that we propagate and that we consciously or unconsciously are reproducing is really a very dangerous one. There are four invitations by Jesus, at least, in the, in the Gospels. And we're going to look at them today. So take your Bibles. We'll be looking at John chapter 1. We're going to be in John. We'll be in Matthew. We'll be further down in Matthew. And then we'll be back in John. We're going to kind of be all over the Gospels for a, a time today. And every one of these passages of Scripture I will not do justice to. I hope I will only whet your appetite that you will go further with this because there's not enough time for me to develop this. But if we can just begin to look at the invitations of Jesus upon us and kind of classify where we are at, then we can see where we are missing it in our faith. And if we can somehow develop this message today as the prototype for the rest of the series, and we keep coming back to it, pushing back to it, then we can truly, I think, run our lives through a grid and to say, you know what, I'm missing it here, and it's because of this. 
These four invitations are absolutely fundamental to the faith. The first invitation is a call to explore. We're called to explore, to dive in and to understand who God is. John the Baptist, we shared about him a few weeks ago. And we remember John the Baptist was that disciple, or excuse me, was that, 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 that relative cousin, second cousin of Jesus, who had a dynamic, growing ministry unto himself, but yet his goal was not himself. His goal was Jesus and to promote and to point people to Jesus. Jesus was the aim. Even when his disciples come to him in alarm and say, listen, Jesus is growing. He said, listen, his ministry is bigger than mine. That's okay. He must increase, but I must decrease. But in that same context of a passage that we read on that Sunday, we, we read about whenever, whenever John points over to Jesus. We don't know if he was walking by. We don't know where he was, if he was a stone's throw away or if he was a a half a city, a block away or wherever he was. But he points and he points to Andrew and some other unnamed disciple of John the Baptist. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God. And just a few verses prior to that, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His disciples knew that Jesus, the, the, the Jewish people of that day knew that Jesus the Lamb of God, that, that this Lamb of God was the one in Isaiah 52, uh, uh, was, was said to be the Lamb of God who would be led to the slaughter, who would take away the sins of the world, Isaiah 53. And they knew this, they, they, they'd heard this, they'd been expecting it, and now John the Baptist is declaring that, yes, he's here, he's right over there. And all of a sudden, Andrew goes to him. And Jesus turns around and asks him a very simple question. What do you want? What are you looking for? And it's interesting at that point because Andrew has just heard John the Baptist said, This is the Lamb of God. But it wasn't that that Andrew called him. Andrew called him Rabbi. Now, I want to hang on that for a moment. Because John the Baptist says, that's the Lamb of God. Why didn't Andrew go up to him and say, hey, Lamb, hey, God, hey, Savior of the world? He didn't do that. Because he is in an exploration mode. He has been following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying, no, go follow that man over there, the Lamb of God. And so in that exploration mode, he goes up to Jesus and he doesn't call him God. He doesn't call him Lamb. He doesn't call him Savior of the world. He looks at him and he calls him Teacher. And that's a very key thing to understand because then he hangs with Jesus for a while. He even spends the night. But when you are in this exploration mode, Jesus is your teacher. Let's look at this passage and let's read it. John chapter 1, verse 35, it says this, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus. John looked at Jesus and he walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. So they quit following John. Now they're following Jesus. Jesus turned And saw them following him, and he said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi. They didn't call him Lamb. They didn't call him God. They said Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, come, and you will see. Key invitation number one is that Jesus Christ gives out the okay to come and to see. 
to explore, if you will, to go in and find out more about this, this Jesus man. So that they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And I want you to just hang on those words there of Jesus because that is the key. Jesus, whenever we are in the exploration mode, he is simply our teacher. We, we need to understand that Jesus had many thousands of people around him. At many number of times he was feeding them at times, thousands of them. You know the stories, miracles that were taking place. People were being healed. They would come around and throngs of people. He would get in the boat to try to escape the crowds of people. And by the time he got to the other side, some kind of Internet system I don't even know of, well, got the word across the ocean that, hey, Jesus is on his way. And by the time he got there, there was another crowd. Crowds were around Jesus all the time. Jesus was fine with the come and see people. He was absolutely fine with explorers, people who were not followers of Christ. Some of you in this room today, and in every gathering that we have today, I would classify yourself and you would classify yourself as, hey, I'm not following Jesus yet. I'm just exploring. And you know what? Jesus is okay with that. He had thousands and thousands of people around him. People would push in next to him, touch his garments and be healed. He wouldn't know who they were. He'd have to ask, stop and ask. Explorers are okay. We need to be, and we have been committed as a church to being, a, a church that welcomes exploration. We said in the beginning of the church, I remember whenever I was still living in Africa, writing out the ten statements that became the Grace Point difference. You can find it on our website was not intended to be what it is, but it became that whenever we would say, no, we're going to be a church that's going to be different. We don't know what it's going to be. Okay, what, what does it mean to be different? So I began to write it out. And one of the statements that I made in, in this Grace Point difference is that we would be a seeker-sensitive church. Now, that sent a little red flags up for some people in starting Grace Point. Because they had this idea of a seeker-driven church that we water down the message and we, and we change things up because we don't want to offend any, anybody with the, the message of the gospel. And that was not it at all. We wanted to be seeker-sensitive. That means that we would be sensitive to the explorers out there. Because we felt like Jesus was going to call people to explore Him. And we wanted to be a place that would be safe for them to come in. We'd create an environment that would be safe for them to come in. So I want to say to you today, the first time with us or 50th time with us? If you're exploring, you're in a good spot. Jesus is calling all of us to come and see, and I don't think He ever calls us not to continue to explore the depths of who He is. Constantly come and see. interesting thing is, is not everybody goes next, goes up. The next, that, 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 what happens in verse 41, look at there, He says in His first, or verse 40, He says, one of the two, who heard John speak, followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Interesting thing is, is that Andrew stays on with Jesus, spends the night with him, explores with Jesus, goes deeper with Jesus, and he stays on with Jesus. So I want to go to this next invitation, because it also involves Andrew. And I want to point that out, because Andrew shows us that the invitation isn't just to stay as an explorer. He's calling us to a deeper relationship, and he's calling us to follow him. That's the second invitation, is that now it's not just coming and seeing, it's now stepping it up, and, and we actually step in line and begin to understand him and begin to become like him. Take your Bibles now, you're in John, turn back a couple of books to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. 
I love to hear the pages turning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. We find another scene whenever um, Jesus is coming by the Sea of Galilee, and there's Andrew, and there's Simon, his brother, who later named Peter. And it says, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, professional career fishermen they were. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets. They followed him. And going on, there there were two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and John the brother, and the both. You can see what happens here is there's this, this catalytic moment. And I don't know exactly how it all comes to be, but Andrew goes from just being an explorer to going and getting his brother Simon, who also becomes an explorer, who now goes to another level when they're still out catching fish. And Jesus says, I want to make of you something. Listen, that's important. Jesus said to John, excuse me, said to Andrew, said to Peter, I want to make of you something. I'm in the business of changing lives. It's not enough just to explore. You need to go to the next level. You need to follow me. And evidently the appeal, the conviction, the event was so cataclysmic that it happened in that moment that all of a sudden they drop their nets and they follow him. I want us to understand this about Jesus and the calling and the invitation that he puts out to us is that when we are in the exploration mode, he is our teacher and we're learning the depths of God. We're learning about him. But but he wants us to be his follower. And when we become his follower, he becomes our mentor. He becomes our life-changing example. And he tells Peter and John, excuse me, Peter and Andrew, I'll make you fishers of men. I will make of you something. But first, prior to that, the conditional to that promise is that you must follow me. I can't go my own way. I can't do my own things. I'm now going to be in step with Christ. But when I am in step with Christ, He will make of me something. I hear so many times people looking in the mirror of their life and saying, Gosh, wish I hadn't made that decision. Wish I hadn't done that stupid thing. And they can look back in their life so many times with regret. And I, and, and I want to say that what Jesus wants you to do is look at your life with excitement of what He is doing in you. And He wants to make of you something. He wants to, he wants to tailor make you into a beautiful person to be used by Him. Henry Blackaby said in his amazing Bible study that everybody should go through experiencing God. He says you can't stay where you are and go with God. You can't not stay where you are and go with God. If you have stepped into the status quo mode that you're going to have this love affair with God on the weekends, but you're not going to go with Him on Monday, you are already living the American dream of the religious faith. God is calling us to so much more to, for Him to be our mentor, for Him to change our life, for Him to step in and to make of us Read Philippians 1.6, read Romans 12.1 and 2, and you will find how he is in the transformation business. Can you look at your life? Please, take a second, look in the mirror of your life, 
Can you look and chart anywhere in your life life change? Or is your faith merely an affair with God? Is He your hometown buddy? Is He your moralistic, therapeutic deist? Or is He your life-changing mentor who you are following in His step and He is making of you something? Robert Mulholland Mulholland said this. He said, spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. I don't like the word conform. I would have used the word transform. I think it's more in line with Romans 12. But I think it is important that we understand that spiritual formation is a process that is also of being transformed. There's a changing process that we are going through into the image of what? Into the image of Christ. But I don't want us to stop there. Many people will put a period at the end of Christ. But it's for the sake of others. For the sake of others. We live a very me-centered world. And again, I think one of the things that we've got, one of the pillars of of American Christianity that we've got to tear down is the me-centeredness of our faith. We choose churches, we choose preachers, we choose music, we choose so much because of what I want. Instead of what it's making of me. Instead of what it's calling me to. Instead of looking deeper inside. There's a life principle for you. That we have an other-centered faith in a self-centered world. We have an other-centered faith in a self-centered world. Be very aware of yourself. See, even Jesus said, whenever you follow me, I will make of you something. But he didn't just say, I'll make of you something. I will make of you something for someone else. I will make of you something that you will become fishers of men. Other people beyond yourself. Number three. The third invitation, we'll get ready to tighten the seatbelt now. It's a call to reprioritization. It's a call to reprioritization. Number three. It says sacrifice. I don't know what happened there. There it is. All right. Changes. Just I just point the screen and it changes. That's magical. Jesus is not really good at the Hallmark card writing business, okay? Jesus is able to scare people off. With his words. So you would think that Jesus is trying to amass this massive amount of followers. He's got thousands here and thousands here. Everywhere he goes, thousands of people around him. All he has to do is pull out the, the, the miracle tricks, the dog and pony show, and people will flock to him. But Jesus had, a, had, a, had a, a, a way about him when he calls us out, that he called us to a deeper commitment to where he was absolutely, unmistakably first place. I'll tell you right now, I have lost people at this point. I have lost people in the discipleship process when I come to these verses right here because it just doesn't jive with them. They like Jesus meek and mild. They like Jesus who heals people. They like Jesus who feeds people. They like Jesus who accepts people. But they don't want to fall into the camp of reprioritization of their life. And they get off the bus at this point, and it becomes very slippery for them. Go in Matthew chapter 10 now. You're in Matthew 4. Go over a few chapters to Matthew 10. But as you go there, 
I want you to understand that when Jesus did what he did, said what he said, that there were times that people walked away. In John chapter 6, and you can just jot this down, John 6, verse 66. Ironically, John 6, 6, 6. I didn't put the verses in there, but this is what it says. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That had to rip the heart of God out. But when it comes, and that's what I'm saying, be very aware at this point because many of you will get off the bus and you will keep on the American Christian dream. But hang with me because he's calling us to something so much more. He's calling us to a deeper reprioritization of our life and it must mean that there's going to have to be him first and foremost in our life. Mark, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says it like this. Whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son and daughter more is not worthy of me. Is God telling us to go hate our children? Verse 38, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a, there's a, there's a divine jealousy going on here that I think is actually very healthy. That Jesus Christ will not share His devotion with anybody else. He'll not share your, your time with anybody else. He'll not share your love with anybody else. He'll not share your life with anybody else. But you know what? Lori is very jealous of me. And I am very jealous of Lori. I don't want Lori to be spending the night with any other man. I don't want Lori to be devoted to anybody else more than than she's devoted to me. There's an element of jealousy. Now, I'm not talking about that codependency kind of jealousy where you can't even go out in public without the other person. All right? I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about devotion. And Jesus Christ wants our absolute allegiance He's jealous for it. He will not give it up to share it with anybody else. And that may actually mean a reprioritization of how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we live our life, where we live our life. Think about it. How much do I run through the grid, my time, my talents, my treasures? Does Jesus Christ, is He in this that I'm about to do? Luke 14:26 says it like this, If anyone comes to me, he does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Hey, strong word. But whenever we compare our devotion, it must be Jesus first. And everything else looks like hate. You know, the more I love Jesus, the more I have space in my heart to love you and to love Lord, to love my kids and to love my neighbors. Because my understanding of love is so limited. And listen to this. So distorted. So jacked up. What we've seen modeled in our homes, what we have lived out in our own relationships, is so not the relationship of what love really looks like. 
But whenever I'm madly in love with Jesus and He's priority and I'm studying Him and I'm learning from Him and I'm becoming like Him because He's my mentor and I'm following Him and I'm exploring the depths of Him and He's my teacher and I'm really diving in and He is it in my life, that all of a sudden now I understand the depth and the height and the width and the character of His love. And I think that's one of the reasons he calls us to take up the cross. It's interesting, Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, the very first time Jesus uses the word cross, it starts alluding to the cross, and picking up the cross is here in this verse. And he calls his disciples to go, that they're going to have to pick up the cross. Now, you've got to understand, this is the Maccabean period. They have seen nothing but death and destruction from the cross. The cross was not a pretty picture. The cross meant death. So how is it that Jesus is now introducing a concept that is so foreign to them, except that he's trying to reintroduce what the cross means? He tells his disciples, you've got to take up the cross if you're going to be my disciple. If you're really going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to take up the cross. What does it mean to take up the cross? It means so much. It means so much, my friends. And we, as followers, as explorers, we as reprioritized individuals need to dive into the depths of the cross because in Galatians 2.20, in Romans 6, he tells us again and again that we, the cross, is what we are to carry in our life. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to pick up the cross. So we, if we are going to live fully and love completely, then we're going to have to learn how to die daily. We're going to have to understand the the cross. And when you go to the cross, you learn about forgiveness because when Jesus is dying on the cross, you learn about how he could look at his his absolute betrayers, his disciples who are betraying him here, his accusers who are are stabbing him here, the the mockery of the Pharisee religious right who are are ripping his clothes off of him and gambling his clothes away. He is literally crying out, Father, forgive them. We learn forgiveness from the cross. That's what he calls us to do take up the cross, to live a different life. We learn sacrifice from the cross. The fact that He gave everything Jesus had, He gave it. The thing is, is we hold on to everything that we love. And when Jesus asks us for it, we debate Him. See, if we're going to really follow Jesus in a radical way, everything's on the table. All the chips are in. We are saying, God, my life is your life. My priorities are yours. You are first and foremost in my life. We learn love from the cross. We learn to love people beyond socioeconomic barriers, beyond racial barriers, when Jesus could love the world from the cross. We need to pick up the cross and carry it daily. It means loyalty. When Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, and He cries out to God, sweating blood to His Father, and He says, Father, is there any other way? He says, no, there's no other way. Jesus takes up the cross. Loyalty. What we learn from a life of following Jesus is beautiful and powerful. And you could spend days on end studying the cross. You could study about service from the cross, grace from the cross, power from the cross, the authority from the cross, what Jesus becomes whenever He is our, our priority. is He it becomes first place. He becomes our priority. When we reprioritize, He becomes the priority of our life. And there's one last thing, one last invitation that I see. He doesn't call us to 
pick up the cross. He calls us to follow Him. He calls us to come and see. All of these have their elements, but listen very carefully. He also calls us to suffer. Not again a hallmark greeting card kind of statement, but He calls us to suffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing individual. If you want to study somebody who was radical for Christ in the in the 1900s in the World War, excuse me, in, uh, yeah, in the 1900s during the World War II, you'll find a man who was living in the safety and security of America. But he knew that God wanted him to go back to Germany and to stand up and to take a stand for Christ and take a stand against the 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 atrocities of Nazism. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes back to that, and yet it cost him his very life. There may be times in our life that God may call us to a life of discomfort, to a life of suffering. Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When I say all chips are on the table, I'm saying our life is on the table. Not a faith that's that's common in America today. Jesus becomes our life when we take on the life of being willing to suffer. It's no longer about my life. It's now about His life. And I am willing to take on His life. And in, in John chapter, go to, you're in Matthew, go over again back to John chapter 6. And, and we'll close with this, this passage of Scripture. We find Jesus talking with His disciples. And they get confused with Jesus' teaching so much of the time. Because Jesus said, if you're going to follow Me, you've got to be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What Did Jesus go cannibal on us or something? What's all this about? Blood and flesh and eating it? Just hang with me. Verse 52. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us this flesh, his flesh to eat? They were confused, so Jesus dives in. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you will eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink the blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is, is true drinking. Whoever feeds on my flesh and, and drinks of my blood uh, uh, abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I... I live because of of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And this is the bread that came down out of heaven. Not like the the bread uh, the fathers ate and died. Who feeds on this bread will live forever. said that in the synagogue in Capernaum. And I'll tell you right now, when you come to that passage, it kind of blows you away, pushes you back, because what's this eating flesh and drinking blood? And we've t- come in, in our Christian faith and realized that we have used that to, to, to bring it to the Lord's Supper as we take that little wafer and we take that cup of juice and we take it in and we are, we're reflecting on the life of Christ. But I'll tell you right now that I absolutely believe with all my heart that Jesus was not calling us to the Lord's Supper table to eat a stale wafer and a shot glass of grape juice only. He was calling us to His life. And His life was one that was willing to take the blows, the pains, the suffering. That's why Paul said, I count it all joy when I suffer. It's, it's why the reality is in our comfy, cush, 
carpeted, climate-controlled Christian faith that we live in is so not the biblical faith that I think is represented in Scripture that we must be one. Does that mean we go out and we look for suffering? No. But because we become radical followers of Christ and we take His Word at His Word, then we will go to the ends of the earth at times. And when we do that, it will mean something greatly in the area of suffering. In fact, those who want to live godly and a life in, in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, the Scriptures tell us. I'm afraid most of the Christian faith that I see represented, even at some times in my own life, has the consistency of water. I look for the path of least resistance, and I take it. We're not watered-down faith. We're bold, adventuresome, courageous We are sending teams regularly to West Africa, to a nation where there's a Taliban presence. We get notifications from the U.S. Embassy quite regularly saying that now the Taliban have moved from the south to the north to the south, and now there's a Taliban presence even in the capital city of Bamako. there's, there's, There's a presence of threat there. There's a presence of threat in the unreached people groups of the world. The 1040 window that you hear me speak of, that we prioritize, that we even have the Hall family going into the 1040 window to give of their lives in the nations, one of the ten deadliest nations, sitting right on the front row, leaving from our church to go to hostile environments where Christianity isn't welcome. Why are they doing that? Is that insane? Do we send volunteers to countries? Is that not insane? You know what? The reality is that I must put my life out there and say, God, it only counts when it counts for you. I don't know. But most of us are ready for that. But I think it's what God is calling us to. I absolutely believe it's what he called us to. Go back to that study that was done by Professor Dean at Princeton. Dean did this study, and it literally changed her own life. As the study was being done, and she realized the magnitude of this, she was in her own little faith world, in her very established church, doing her very established faith in And it was really a come and see kind of church where you just kind of come and see. But there was no real challenge to go beyond that. No real challenge to go about. And Dean realized that her faith that she was passing on to her children was not a faith of the Bible. So as your family got up and they changed churches, they got up and they moved. Just like the John 6, 6 verse that I read earlier, some left Jesus because of his calling and his reprioritization and all that talk. Dean gets up and moves her family. Moves her family to an area that needs, to a church that's calling the people up and out. And she made this statement. Obviously, I didn't put words in her mouth, but I love the statement. She said at the conclusion of her report, she says, Do one radical thing for your faith and do it for your kids. You know, if we're going to see an America that comes alive again, a faith 
that is more biblical than it is American. It means reprioritization. It means willingness to suffer. It means following Him. It means exploring Him. It means so much more. And, I, and when I read that statement at the end of a report, I, I just thought to myself, how many times have my kids, have I told my kids, I can't do this. I can't meet what you want, do what you want. We can't go do this because we're making a radical move here for Christ. Maybe it's some of us in our family need to say, you know what, kids? We can't go out to eat every Sunday and spend 40 and $50 at the local restaurant. Because we haven't been setting aside in our life a prioritization of giving to God's work around the world. And so we're going to change our family dynamics. We're going to make room to give to God. It may mean for some of us in this room that we don't go see Mickey this year, but we load up our kids on a jet plane and we go on the other side of the world and we go into an unreached people group and we go to unreached children who will sit down with you for hours on end and you don't have to have bells and whistles and fancy stories and they'll kick around a homemade soccer ball and you can just tell them the stories of Jesus and they'll just soak it up. You talk about a better experience for your children than Mickey Mouse, it'll change it. Some of us in this room might need to tell our kids, no, I can't come watch Dora the Explorer with you right now because I need to spend time with God and His Word. How many people absolutely don't have time for God and the simple reason is they don't make time for God. Some of the things we're going to talk about as you go into the book, Radical, and you hear us talk in the next few weeks, again, I want to say it's not radical. It's just biblical. It's making space in your dollars, making space in your time, making space in your, in, in your life so that God can mentor you that your life will be changed. I'm afraid we don't have that hot, passionate love for God. Would you let this song just be sung over you today? But maybe the Lord will call you today to a deeper, deeper walk with Him. Come and kneel at the front. This is your time. I'll be here at the front. This is your time. Father God, speak to us now. Change us deeply, God. Change us. Jesus' name.